Hello, thank you for joining us on what will be a, another fascinating discussion on foreign policy and national security matters. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined yet again with Professor Elizabeth Saunders, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University. As you know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, this is Professor Saunders' third uh, appearance. This is the trilogy. She is the author of a lot of great articles and a, and a fascinating book, Leaders at War, How Presidents Shape Military Interventions. Her most recent article that we're going to discuss later is in the current issue of International Organization, No Substitute for Experience, Presidents, Advisors, and Information Group Decision Making. As always, you can follow her research on Twitter at Prof Saunders. That's at P-R-O-F-S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. Liz, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, my pleasure to be back. It's uh, a trilogy, so I feel like I need to go out with a bang or, you know, get the ring to Mordor or wherever it is it ends up. I don't know, but uh, that's a high bar. This will this will be better. This will be better than the third uh, Godfather. So, uh, okay. so we we spoke almost a year ago uh, at the height of the campaign. We then spoke in no, in December, I'm sorry, after President Trump uh, was elected but had not taken office. We are now speaking 100 days into the Trump administration. From your perspective as a scholar who thinks a lot about decision making and uses of force, etc., um, what is your just rough take on the 100 days of Trump's foreign policy? Wow. Um, it's hard, like one sense of time just... Uh, I don't know. My perception of time has really changed, I think, in the last <laughs> year. I think this is happening to everyone, right? On some level, you think, has it really only been 100 days? It feels like it feels like so much has happened that, that could have been, you know, each of the stories would have been two or three weeks on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so much has happened. And yet, not a lot has happened. So it's just, I don't know if everyone is feeling this, but my sense of time has been very um, distorted, I think. So uh, it's a hundred days in, and yet, and we're also just in a completely different world, say, than the first conversation we had a year ago, when I think everyone's sense of what was possible and the range of possibilities that could happen in U.S. foreign policy was was just narrower, mm-hmm. right? So a hundred days in, it, it's the case that um, we're still a member of NATO. Uh, our policies in many regions haven't changed as dramatically as maybe uh, Trump suggested. Um, we haven't pulled out of NAFTA, although yesterday there was some talk that maybe we might renegotiate it. So there, there hasn't been the radical break in practice, even though there's been a lot of talk about radical change in U.S. foreign policy under President Trump. On the other hand, I think it's safe to say that our ability to, to make educated guesses about what will happen has probably diminished in the sense that I feel like every, every time I try to predict the what we call in, in statistical analysis the confidence interval. How confident are we in our in our prediction? That the confidence interval has gotten wider. It could be that that uh, we aren't going to send boots on the ground in Syria, but would it surprise me if we did? No, nothing would really surprise me anymore. So right. just the range of possibilities has has just gotten a lot wider, and that's that's why I feel like not a lot has changed, and yet a lot has also changed pretty dramatically, and it's it's very hard to put your finger on it. Um, But it's been quite a year and quite a hundred days. 
Well, it's it's interesting because part of that uh, wide confidence interval has to do with this administration's habit, both the president as well as senior anonymous advisors either leaking or making really extremist uh, statements one way or the other, uh, uh, subverting conventional wisdom about U.S. foreign policy, uh, challenging adversaries and allies from China to North Korea to Canada, uh, calling into questions the U.N. and NATO, and then rolling those uh, questions back. So it's hard to know if those public statements of extremists are just floated positions, are trying to soften opposition to more moderate but uh, significant changes in foreign policy? Like, how do you distinguish between what is visible and what is invisible? So this is just a, a really tough question, and it's one reason why to get a real handle on what happened under any given presidency, you, you do sort of have to wait for the 30-year mark where you can get, dig into the documents and try to reconstruct what happened. I mean, the journalistic accounts that we have as it unfolds are wonderful and but they, they are sometimes upended by what we later discover. So um, as I've written uh, in a piece uh, with Jim Goldgeier not long after the inauguration in Foreign Affairs, um, we made the argument that a lot of good foreign policy is invisible. It's very hard to see its effects. And this is the kind of, this is the kind of stuff that doesn't get a lot of attention, but that's really important. Day-to-day -day diplomacy with other countries, um, reassuring trade partners, making uh, and enforcing trade agreements, the kinds of things that bring benefits that we don't think about that aren't top of the mind, but that when we would immediately notice if they went away. Right. And this stuff doesn't get a lot of attention, um, but it's it, and it happens behind the scenes. But it's been the lifeblood of American foreign policy basically since the end of World War II. And a lot of the stuff that Trump doesn't like falls under this category, where you no, know, you don't think about it and while you're getting its invisible benefits, but the minute you took it away, you would, would notice. So right. trade you know, trade deals are a great example of this because the costs of trade deals are, are concentrated and the benefits are concentrated in the sense that when a factory closes because of a trade deal, that's a very painful, obvious cost. The benefits we all get sort of every day, and yet we don't think about them. Cheaper consumer goods, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and so those costs would go up. The consumer goods would go would increase in, in cost if the trade deals um, went away. And so it's not the kind of thing Trump responds well to because it's, he can't tweet it. It's not, it, it, you know, he's not going to be able to say, I had four boring meetings and they really uh, helped prevent crises down the road. Good, good job today, President Trump. I mean, that's just not the kind of thing Trump is going to be excited to, to, to talk about or tweet. Right. It's almost like paying paying an insurance premium. Um, it you don't you feel as though it's a waste of money, but then when you get sick, you're really happy that you hit. <laughs> right. Um, and I and I and so I think um, at the moment he really just wants visible policy that he can can hang his, his hat on, and certainly you know for his hundred day accomplishment list, that's what he wants. And those are hard to come by in foreign policy, and the problem is. He's not doing the kind of preventive maintenance or paying the premium on insurance that that will will make the crisis moments go well. So he's not staffing the State Department. He's not really staffing much of anything. Um, he's not uh, he's not traveling abroad in ways that reassure our allies. Um, he's trying to do stuff that's very visible, tangible, shows toughness, and and I think. Um, 
I think that's the kind of thing where the bill for that will come due, and we can't really know when, but it will come due, because he's basically hollowing out U.S. foreign policy. Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned this looking tough, because there is one very visible thing that presidents have relative uh, uh, power and authority to do, and which is use, sh use force and shows of force. So we saw the excitement with the 59 cruise missiles into Syria, or the uh, Moab bomb that was dropped in Afghanistan, or this... Um, very excited announcements about a carrier, what was really a, a routine carrier movement uh, in, in the Pacific. Um, yeah, where in the world is the U.S.? <laughs> the Carl Vinson, right? <laughs> um, and, and so that's one area where the president can be very visible, and people have sort of tried to uh, um, intuit that this is the indications of some, quote, Trump doctrine. What do you make of the president's um, uses of force decisions, which seem to be something he's very comfortable with because they give visibility, but also something that he is seems to have significantly delegated both to the Pentagon and to regional combatant commanders. Yes, and it's very clear that the military is the institution that Trump um, respects and defers to the most, um, maybe the only institution in the government that he feels that way about. Uh, and, uh, and so he's, he seems to have uh, really delegated a lot of authority to, to the military, and this kind of demonstration of force fits exactly under this visible, foreign, tangible foreign policy that I talked about earlier that he really responds to and wants to be able to, to, to talk about after the fact, right? I did this. I sent the tomahawks into Syria. You know, the Carl Vinson is gonna, gonna show the North Koreans. Um, very, very sort of obvious, visible signals of, of toughness. Um, the problem is, it's very hard to send signals effectively, So, and, and we have a lot of good scholarship on this, uh, and in fact, this week in the Monkey Cage, uh, the blog at the Washington Post that helps translate political science for a broader audience, um, where I'm uh, an editor, we had a wonderful piece by Karen Yarhimillo uh, of Princeton, Daniel Lupton from, from Colgate, and Roseanne McManus um, from Baruch uh, College in New York, and they, they pointed out all the ways in which it's very hard to, to, to actually send signals effectively. And the way Trump and, and Mike Pence have been going about doing this is not the way you do it. So, you, mm -hmm. so for example, when Pence did his little walkabout in the demilitarized zone, he said, you know, I wanted them to see the resolve in my face. Yeah, that only works when you don't actually say, right. you know, when the resolve is just there and you don't talk about it. So um, uh, I think that uh, that's one issue, that, that it's they're almost protesting too much about just how tough they are, and and they need to learn that that there's a little bit of aloofness can go a long way. Um, the second is the question of of this issue of delegation that you brought up, and this is what my piece that was um, just published, as you said, in an international organization points out that when you have an inexperienced president who delegates, every person in the government, every human being comes with a set of of biases. We all have biases. Biases serve very useful functions. They have a, kind of a bad name, but, but they're, they're very useful. And the military has its own biases, and um, they tend to see the world through, obviously, military um, lenses, and that, that makes a lot of sense, and that's good, and we want them to do that. On the other hand, the point of a good process for deciding about the use of force is to make sure that this is these biases are counterbalanced by other viewpoints, and you want to get a diversity. And over-reliance on the military with an inexperienced president that can't ask probing questions, doesn't know um, 
past history of, of the use of force particularly well, doesn't seem to read memos, and isn't staffing up agencies like the State Department that could provide a, a sort of counterbalanced view so that you could have a robust debate. Mm-hmm. That's a recipe for sort of enabling the military's biases. And so, so far we haven't seen dramatic evidence of, of problems, but again, as we get further and further down the road, you know, an inexperienced president who doesn't seem inclined to learn or read, um, so isn't likely to have a, a quick learning curve, it's just we're putting policy in the hands of the military. We're not doing anything to sort of counterbalance whatever problematic biases are naturally going to be there. And that, in the long run, it has the effect of increasing risk. Maybe it'll all work out, but again, the confidence interval on what we would predict might happen gets wider. The range of things that could happen gets wider. Right, the uncertainty right. or surrounding gets wider. The risk just goes up that something will go wrong. Well, it, it seems that the, this administration has decided to uh, swing the pendulum back against the perception of the Obama White House, which, quote, micromanage both the use of force and even the movement of forces around the globe. Um, and so President Trump, which was a remarkable statement for a commander in chief, said that, quote, I have given total authority uh, for the military to undertake certain actions. And of course, the president has a different lens, uh, strategic, domestic, political lens through which uh, uh, he or she sees the use of force than the military. And, and I don't think we understand Trump's lens yet, other than he seems to like visible kinetic activities. Yes, I think that's right, and I, and I think um, it's pretty clear. There's some things that we know about him that he doesn't like. So it's, it's clear he's not a big fan of, of a large, you know, lengthy policy debate and deliberation. Right. Um, that's the sort of knock on Obama that that it was, there was too much deliberation, and, and you know we could debate whether that's that's the case. But it also it could simultaneously be true that Trump is doing too little of that. Um, just not having the bodies in the State Department is is a pro- is problematic enough. Um, and he's got an inexperienced um, Secretary of State. So, so, so there's just a huge imbalance. He does now have some experienced advisors, but the, the experience overwhelmingly lies in the military. That's, that's the agency where, where you have experience and competence right now. Um, and to some extent, the National Security Council has improved uh, dramatically with the placement of Mike Flynn with um, H.R. McMaster, but he, of course, also comes from the military. So you just have one perspective where all the competence and all the experience lies, and not and a president disinclined to do any sort of lengthy policy deliberation. Well, I mean, this gets so to hire presidents to to have like to take in this information and have a an informed debate in times of crisis. That's what the job description is, right. right? And we really, as you say, we don't we don't have a great read on his lens, but that we can say that much that he doesn't like this sort of lengthy debate process and. and if he doesn't have a, a strong lens, then you would like to have other people kind of duking it out in a serious way and not simply reverting to the one lens where, where you know, there are people with competence and experience. Well, it's, it's interesting because this gets to your article in the current issue of International Organization, No Substitute for Experience, Presidents, Advisors, and Information and Group Decision-Making, because... There you talk about really presidents, uh, they're supposed to monitor their advisors and how they fight amongst themselves. And we have lots of public reporting of that being an issue w- within this administration. Uh, that determines to the extent they're comfortable with delegating uh, authority. Um, the presidents are also supposed to get a diversity of opinions and advice when they make large decisions. 
and it's not clear, as you pointed out, that this is happening. So, I mean, what advice would you give to if you could sort of restructure the NSC, uh, or you could restructure the um, either the civilian or military agencies that provide advice up through the NSC? What advice would you give to the president today to take into account um, different insights, different advisors for more for better decision support? Gosh, great question. I mean, if I had the if I had the answer to that, I uh, <laughs> I'd be in a different amount of work. But I guess I would say right now the thing that is most concerning to me in terms of going, moving from the moment we the, the place we are now to say a year from now, um, I think the 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 staffing problems on the non on the non military foreign policy side are the is the most critical thing because. And this is not a knock against the military, right? The military is, is excellent, and, and they do what they do very well. It's just that they, they do it their way, and they themselves understand that they come at this from a particular perspective, and they don't always necessarily want to use force. Um, but they need, they are one perspective, and, the, and what you want is to have a diversity of, of perspectives that, that can then, you know, inform decisions. And clearly there's just a massive imbalance right now. Right. So, um, and I think also, um, I read yesterday that, there, that there's a real problem getting the, the positions on Asia staffed up uh, across the board, including in DOD. And so I would say staff up the State Department and staff up the, the positions on Asia because that's where a lot of the action is. And um, we really need great people, you know, manning those decks. And so um, kind of correcting the imbalance in where the 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 competence and expertise lies and the people that Trump trusts, you know, making sure that there's there's some people that he trusts that are that are in the State Department and have a have that are confirmed. And mm-hmm. again, they're great people who can do these jobs on an acting basis. This is not a knock against the career people, but there is real value in having a political appointee who even if you don't if we don't out as outsiders necessarily agree with their views, they the president does and the and the president has confidence in that person and can delegate to that person. And the State Department can get things done that way. And and so, you know, the failure to staff up, I which I if if Trump's own statements are to be believed is partly a deliberate strategy. That's a it's a real problem. And that's that's something he could start working on now that might actually help with the crisis that comes around in another nine months. One of the problems is, is as, as I've seen it, Secretary Tillerson and Mattis are trying to hire people and people don't want to work. <laughs> I mean, in part because yeah. people have to clear the ideological and partisan uh, uh, hurdle that the White House, that every White House puts out. And if they do that, they couldn't have signed Never Trump letters. And then you have to be willing to work for a president who says some pretty uh, outlandish and erratic uh, things and demonstrates odd behaviors. And they've asked um, individuals quite a number of times, and they've simply declined. Um, so I, I think e- even at the at the DOD and state level, and on the seventh floor and in the E ring, they know this, uh, and they just can't find the people to do it. And then the career people aren't allowed to do it. Right, and I, and I do. I've also seen reports that it's gone the other way, where they have found people who have then been vetoed by the White House, and um, it's a bad situation. We have a wonderful piece by David Lewis, who's a terrific scholar of um, presidential appointments, um, more broadly, not just including foreign policy, but um, today in the Monkey Cage on sort of looking at the hundred days from the perspective of you know how good a manager is, 
President Trump thus far, he's just really behind, and and he makes the point that that this is this is partly the White House and their process for finding people, and the, the strictures that they put in place are just impossible. So it goes both ways, right? Some people might not want to go in, but then some people might, and then can't seem to, to get past the, the past and. And it's just the case that in politics, you got to let bygones be bygones at some point, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama do that in 2008. And whatever else you think of them, you know, it is remarkable that with almost no recrimination, she was almost immediately appointed to be his Secretary of State after after he was elected. And, and that is a dramatic example. And it goes on at much lower levels where staffers in a primary, you know, when, when somebody drops out of a primary, often those staffers find a home in the... In, among the, you know, in the staff of the candidate that's going on. And, and it's just, this is just the way politics normally works. And somehow it's not the way it's working in the Trump White House. You have to think the day of reckoning for that is coming. The question is, will it come soon enough that when a major crisis or war hits, you'll have the right people in place? And that is, we can muddle along for a while. And the outward appearance of reverting, you know, the revenge of the mainstream and Trump isn't moving policy as far as everybody thinks. We've seen a spate of takes like that, right? In various regions, policy in the Middle East hasn't changed that much. Policy in Asia hasn't changed that much. And I think that's, on some level, that's right. On the other hand, that could just be inertia. And and mm-hmm. it's not the same thing as saying that in a crisis, when you kind of poke at the policy, it won't come crashing down because there's sort of nothing behind it. It's almost like a Potemkin village. Um it's all there for show, and and it, and it just doesn't have a lot of meat on the phone. Well, I mean, I, I can imagine what's going to happen with regards to the Korean Peninsula because this is an administration, I mean, both outwardly and the limited conversations I've had with people is they're looking to instigate a crisis with North Korea. They want to, between the ears of Kim Jong-un, create a sense of urgency to uh, – freeze or roll back its uh, ICBM and nuclear weapons program. And they believe that they have a series of economic, diplomatic, political levers to do so. They're not quite sure of the path, how they get there, or they don't really have a theory of victory, is the phrases, for how to get there. But they are looking to instigate the crisis. And it's not clear, as you point out, that they have the bench to support that crisis. Yeah, so the policy can look relatively unchanged, and then it's when the crisis comes that all of a sudden the differences become really apparent, right? And this is what we mean when we say it's like not paying the insurance premium, right? The effect, you know, if you, do, if you don't pay your, if you drop your health insurance deliberately, as opposed to not being able to, to get it, which is a different problem. You know, day one, you're fine. Day two, you're fine. Day three, you get sick, and suddenly the world is very different than the world where you got sick with and did have insurance. And you know, the safety net is no longer underneath you. And, and that goes not just for staffing, but also for allies. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't talk to your friends for, for years and years and years, and then suddenly you call on them and you need them, right? They're going to say, well, you haven't been a very good friend to me, so why should I help you now? Same thing with allies, right? I mean, on some level, this boring stuff that, that he doesn't like doing is uh, necessary. Uh, eating your spinach. Well, within a course of your podcast before, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, within a course of about five days, NATO became credible uh, after having yeah. been uncredible for almost two years. And so, a lot of people breathed a sigh of relief when he said that. But on the other hand, we just we still want to know if that's a sincere change in his thinking or not, right? And Tom Tom Wright from Brookings had this wonderful piece that was written almost a year before the inauguration. That, that pointed out that Trump has been anti-alliances for decades. This is 
is a totally consistent view. There, there, there are some things Trump has no views on, and there, but there are a few things that that Tom Wright identified as being consistent Trump views. One was uh, that he's been very anti-trade. Two, he doesn't really like alliances, and three, he's he likes he's, he likes authoritarian regimes. Mm-hmm. And and so the question is, when he stood next to the NATO Secretary General and said NATO is no longer obsolete. Did he have a real change of heart? Or was he just trying to sort of, was he bowing to reality? Or was he just trying to be nice to his visiting guest? This, the outcome is the same. He stands there and says, no, you know, NATO is no longer obsolete. But if it's just to, if it's not really a sincere conversion on his part, we would like to know that. Why does that matter? Because he could be doing a lot of things behind the scenes to be gutting NATO or just passively by not investing in it letting NATO kind of wither on the vine, right? And that bill will come due at some point down the road. And that's why it actually matters, right, that this surface appearance of continuity or revenge of the mainstream, it might not actually be so sincere. And, you know, that's the reason why I think um, this invisible stuff going on behind the scenes is is extremely important. Or the stuff that's not going on behind the scenes. Right, right. um, two, I guess two questions left. Uh, one, from your perspective as an IR editor at Monkey Cage Blog, which I recommend to everybody who's interested in getting bite-sized, digestible samples of great policy-relevant academic work, uh, check out Monkey Cage Blog. But So you're a, an academic who bridges a gap between serious social science and more applied policy sort of research. It must be a fascinating time uh, talk about like your colleagues in the bridging the gap world. How are they getting work done when essentially every theory hypothesis uh, about how the world works, how foreign policy is made, how states act, interact, balance is being tested? How are people getting stuff done? Well, I would say um, I can only speak for myself, but for the first uh, month or so after the election, it was very hard to get any work done. I mean, it was very hard to to. Focus, and I think what I think a lot of people have kind of come back around to is, yes, a lot of our theories are being tested in real time, but it also has reminded people of the value of a lot of things that we have taken for granted for a long time. So, so many of the things I've mentioned, alliances, um, we don't think anymore about the the, the peaceful benefits, the benefits that that include you know peace, uh, that that things like the European Union and and NATO, which have just become kind of part of the furniture in our in the way we think about international relations and we don't question them anymore. Well Trump has questioned them and so it's forced people to stand up and, and defend them. And so as professors we will go back to the classroom and teach our students why why did we make these things? Why do we spend money on them still? What's the value? And I think that has been a that's a silver lining um, to the to the chaos, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, you know, there definitely came a point where you have to say, okay, um, just like insurance, you know, Trump needs to pay the premiums on our U.S. foreign policy insurance. We need to pay the premiums on our academic insurance, right? And uh, we don't know what the crisis is going to be that comes down the pike in 18 months or, or two years or four years. And the articles that are being drafted now are going to come out in on that timeline. Academic timelines are really long. The piece that came out in I.O. this week, that seems to be so timely and super policy relevant because it's all about why foreign policy experience matters and all the other papers and the special issue that it's a part of are all about psychological bias and leaders and it just seems so timely. 
the first conference where we all wrote drafts for that of those, I think it's like four years ago. Right. It's just, you know, you don't know, you can't chase the headlines. And so I think we all had to take a deep breath and go back to doing basic research. And um, we don't want to be chasing chasing Trump and Trumpism and the effects of Trump too much. We want to we want to look at what we know. And I think um, probably the most one of the most productive things we can do is is to take stock in a really serious way of what we still don't know and what this episode has highlighted are the big gaps in our knowledge and, and then go back to doing basic research that might not see the light of day for four years. And and in the meantime, keep writing in places like the monkey cage about what we do already know and and where those gaps are and acknowledge our mistakes and so forth. So that for me has been the way of kind of recovering from the shock and getting back into the trenches of academic research to try to divide my time between the long-term bets on what's going to matter in, in the future and not expecting that that's going to be immediate, and then take the short-term stuff from what the stock of knowledge that we already know the people in the mainstream media might or or you know, broader audience might not be familiar with. Right. Um, so, final question. You know, the question we ask everybody is, what advice would you give to young people in your field? Now, we've already asked you that, and then <laughs> we, and then we asked you, what advice would you give to your peers? It's essentially almost therapy, like asking what advice you give to yourself. So this week, we're going to go up the chain of command. Okay. Uh, and the question for High you... High pressure, right? Third time, <laughs> like a third set of advice. The, this time, what advice would you give to bosses in your field, the, the academic world? Because uh, someday you'll be there. You'll be a dean. You'll be a university president. You'll be, uh, heaven forbid, a department chair um, t attending a lot of meetings. Um, what advice would you give to your bosses? Wow. Well, I mean, um, I guess I would say my advice would be relatively similar to what I would say to myself or to my to up and coming people, um, because I think it's just good advice. And that is, it's the same advice I'd give Trump. It's read widely and and get a variety of opinions and try to make sure that departments reflect a variety of views and perspectives. Um, and some departments can be very successful having a particular brand of scholarship that they do, but even if you're a department like that, bring people in from outside to give talks so that students are exposed to a variety of perspectives. I think this election um, did a number of things, but it highlighted for all of us in various aspects of our lives, not just in our scholarship as academics, that we there are bubbles and, and perspectives that we've missed, and so maybe just trying to break down some of those barriers um, would be helpful. And so take stock of of who's in our in your department and and whether um, I mean diversity is a somewhat separate concern and, and I think a very important concern. But that's not quite what I mean here. I, mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, are the is everybody using the same kind of methodology or is everybody um, writing from the same perspective? Um, what what can you do to make sure that students and faculty alike are sort of exposed to new ideas and ideas from different quarters and um, I, I think this is always good advice, but I think in the wake of this election, it's, it behooves all of us to take a step back and just sort of redouble our efforts to make sure that that's getting done. So make a point to look and scan and read widely, listen to voices outside your echo chamber. Uh, another great podcast with perfect accumulating advice from Liz Saunders. Liz, thank you so much for joining us yet again. Oh, my pleasure. And if any... Um, uh, academics are listening and interested in submitting to the monkey cage, I would encourage you to do so. 
Right. If you so, if you're a listener, go read Monkey Cage. If you're a assistant associate professor, you have a PhD coming out. You have an article coming out. Uh, get in touch with Liz. Let her know what you have uh, at at Monkey Cage blog. Liz, thank you again so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Micah.